This is Blue Moon. It's the original fan-made Manchester City podcast. Coming up, we've got news and views from Cities Week. It's your club and this is your show. How's the nerves holding up? A tight draw in Madrid has left Manchester City in a good position in the Champions League semi-final, while the finishing line is in sight in the Premier League. After beating Leeds last weekend, City are now eight points away from the title, barring a ridiculous and unlikely goal difference swing. Let's call it three wins from the final four games just to be safe. Welcome to this week's Blue Moon podcast, where there's no time for joking around because there's big games coming out of our ears. It's Everton away next, a notoriously tricky game, even despite their recent struggles. And nobody's taking that for granted. We'll chat through that and the Real Madrid second leg coming up next week later on the show. Also on today's show we'll focus on Erling Haaland. He's got the record for the best ever Premier League goal scoring season so we've gathered the thoughts of a load of opposition managers to find out how they've tried and failed to stop him. We'll also hear from our EDS expert Sean Blinkhorn to find out more about how the younger age groups have got on this season and the business end of the season demands a no-nonsense set of guests too. I'm David Mooney and we're pulling out all the stops as I'm joined by the Daily Mail's Jack Gorm. Hello, David. You all right? Not too bad. Thank you, Jack. And One Football's Dan Burke. Hello, David. How are you doing, Dan? Very well, thanks. Good, good. Jack, you well? Yes, yeah. Feeling, uh, as a journalist that covers Manchester City, feeling very cold and unenthusiastic, <laughs> as people say these days. <laughs> I don't. I which is an awful, it. awful in-joke, which probably the majority, hopefully the majority of the podcast listeners won't understand, so apologies. I uh, I will not hear a word of it, mate. I will not hear a word of it. Um, Jack, you were in <laughs> Madrid. Um, first off, uh, what was the game like? Because uh, I, I could only watch it on the telly and um, I absolutely, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought it was a brilliant game um, and I thought City were fantastic. What was it like there? Yeah, it was absolutely amazing. Every time, every time I go to the Bernabeu, it's an, it's an incredible spectacle. Um, I thought... Yeah, they they approached the game in a really positive, positive manner, um, and obviously dominated it for for, for half an hour, uh, which was quite it was quite an intriguing first half really with the way that Real Madrid approached it and how City wanted to impress themselves um, on the game. And then, but the, probably the most impressive thing I thought about the about the night from a City perspective was the way they hung in and, and yeah. dug in for that twenty minutes after half time, which you know a few years ago that. Got ropey, uh, might, not, might not have happened. Yeah, they, they might have conceded uh, another or or a couple more. So, yeah, it was really like really positive, and they obviously go into next week as, as slight favourites now. Yeah, I um, I got home from work uh, not long before kickoff, and uh, I had to make me tea. So I, you know, you know, you shouldn't leave food unattended on while well, it's on the hob. I kept having to <laughs> rush back into the kitchen to check that everything was fine, so I could run back in. And every time I came back into the living room to to, to see the telly. City just had possession of the ball again around the edge of the box. And Dan, like I I can't explain how much that settles the nerves. It's it's fantastic, isn't it? Just watching a team as good as City go to a place against a team as good as Real Madrid, especially in the Champions League, and just control it in the opening stages. Yeah, I mean, I, I perhaps naively wasn't very nervous about this game. I was I was more excited than anything. I, I was I was kind of expecting us to go there and really stamp our, our, our authority on the game and, and play really well and dominate the ball like we did for that first 25, 30 minutes. You know, it was um, it was really good. It was really controlled. It really quietened down the, the crowd at the Bernabeu. Um, and I think what you have to say about it as well is that Madrid probably anticipated that that was the way the game was going to go and the way they defended, it made it hard, even though City had the, a lot of the ball and, and were really in control. It made us hard to create much in terms of like clear-cut chances and you know Rodri had that one from outside the box De Bruyne had a shot from outside the box in the first half Haaland had that header 
but there wasn't anything clear cut coming really. I think Madrid they sat deep and they did a good job of of shutting off the flanks, and I think it perhaps gave the illusion of of kind of total control a bit more than it actually was. And I think mm. Madrid were kind of biding their time a little bit really, and you saw the game change a little bit just just before the goal. And there was a couple of moments on on both wings where they kind of um, they kind of duped City into pressing them and played like a nice little one-two and got got up the pitch and and the second one of those was the one that uh, when Vinicius broke through the press and um, sorry Camavinga broke through the press and and played it to uh, Vinicius and, and then he scored so yeah I think it's kind of a hard game to analyse because there was some really good things that City did and some things that uh, some really good things that Madrid did some things that City did that weren't so great. Uh, but overall, I think the result is just more important than, than the performance, really. And the result was a really good one. I was quite interested in it, in the sense that there's not actually... I did, well, I didn't think there were there that many talking points after it. I thought it was just two two teams, two brilliant teams, both going at each other yeah. with different styles. But it was... it was uh, Yeah, I just found it... I was thinking about what, what to write yesterday morning as like a follow-up. And like, there weren't any major topics to go at. Which I quite unusual for a for a game of that magnitude. I thought. Yeah, I um I, I thought in a weird way, Jack, that as individuals, City's players weren't actually that good, but as a team performance, it was really good. If that makes sense. Yeah, I would say. Yeah, I thought they were um in the they were great in the in the shape. Everyone knew the roles. It was just it was a sort of sloppiness on the ball. I thought, um, which is a little bit of a shame in and around the box. Like, I don't know how much of it got picked up on the telly but Guardiola was was going mad at um well pretty much everybody got uh a, a little bit of a talking to at one point by him there was one where they would in the second half I think it was sort of between the 70 and 80th minute and they had quite a good little bit of possession in in the middle third and they were popping it about quite quick and then Grealish hit a hit a ball into Gundogan and like caned it into his chest for about 10 yards and they got and they got turned over quite quick and you go that is those are the margins aren't they if, yeah you know one poor ball like that and you you've got five men ahead of the ball and, and Real are so good at counter-attacking or transitioning that that could be the game there so it's it's one of those things where they've got to be they've got to be mindful of that on next Wednesday which, I, which is why I don't think they'll play much differently I think it'll be quite uh, pragmatic in a way, and I think it would be Bernardo out on the right again, and and they'll they'll try and slow the game down, uh, and just pass Real to death if they can. Yeah, um, interesting uh, in the way after the game, Dan, that Guardiola he, he said to the telly um, that Madrid scored when City were better, and City scored when Madrid were better. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I guess that that kind of sums up the game, doesn't it? Yeah, it did. I mean, I think there was. Two, both teams really defended well as well, I would say. Um, I think City defended the box really well. Obviously, Real Madrid did. Both goals were wonder goals from outside the area. And, you know, we, did, we didn't give Madrid that many other chances, even even towards the end where they were really pushing for that second goal. You know, they had that uh, Benzema header. Apart from that, there, was, there wasn't much for them to sort of grasp onto, really. And I, I wonder if maybe there's a little bit more kind of emotional intelligence to City this this season after, after what happened last year as well. And also... These two-legged games, they're always more of a kind of attritional affair than normal games. Obviously, it's a 180-minute match, isn't it, that you played essentially with you know a leg in each uh, in each ground. And the way that you react to conceding a goal after 35 minutes in a 180-minute match is 
very different to how you would um, react if it was in a 90-minute match. You know, you know, there's a long way to go and it's about just kind of hanging in there. I was just thinking when we when we went 1-0 down, okay, this is fine. Just don't concede another goal now. Yeah. Don't don't get, make that gap get any bigger. And I think the way the game finished was quite instructive of how the two teams feel about where they are as things stand. I don't think Madrid will be nearly as happy with the 1-1 as we are. And you could see the way they were, they were almost frantically trying to get a second goal at the end, whereas we seem to just be happy to kind of hold on to what we have and I think next week it'll be it'll be our turn to turn up the heat and Jack's right I think we could have kept the ball better at times you know I think Bernardo was guilty of being a bit sloppy in possession at some times which I found quite frustrating but it was also a case that Madrid's closing down was was really good it was really hard for, for City to settle on the ball and I was I was kind of thinking the way the game was going maybe there's a chance for us to break and get a, get a second goal late in the game here there was one moment when I think De Bruyne could have played yeah. Haaland in and he, he didn't make the pass but I was gonna I was gonna overall, mention this one because uh, yeah. of, of all of that that was that that I think that was like I, it was like they added four minutes or something and that was on like ninety two. Uh, yeah. And, I, and I, I, like, I was really torn between the idea of what, like, just don't do the thing that means you conceded a goal in the last minute in this <laughs> game and, and like ruin you one one because one one's fantastic. But think of the prize, you know. Think if you can get exactly. that through, yeah. think of that prize, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but the pri- I mean the prize now is that it's a straight shootout on our ground next week, so we're, we're in a we're in not an ideal situation necessarily, but a really good situation. So I'm I'm very comfortable with how how it went on the night. Yeah, Jack. The uh, I don't know if this was um, true of of uh, kind of Guardiola for, throughout the game, but every time the, the TV seemed to cut to him, he was kind of doing that thing where he was crouched on his haunches on the in the edge of the touchline. It looked a really stressful game for him more than anything else as well. I didn't notice him crouching that much actually. Um, he was crouching a lot against Leeds last week. I mean, the that end was, of that uh, game. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it is. There's there's so much that goes with Guardiola and that specific game on on Tuesday night, and you know the record in the Champions League, and he is obviously hurt at um, people's criticism of his of his record in in Europe since leaving Barcelona. Mentions um, it a lot, doesn't he? Yeah. Plus, you know, plus going to plus going to the Bernabeu where there's no love lost. Um, and added to that, you're playing a really good team, and you, you're desperate to go through. So it, yeah, really, he, he looked he looked pretty shattered at the end when we spoke to him. I think he was ready to he was ready to go home. Uh, is it? I mean, it's true. Is it true that he doesn't eat and stuff before games because of nerves? So I mean, by yeah, by, the, yeah. by the time it's like it's midnight, by the time he's speaking to you in Madrid, <laughs> he's probably starving, isn't he? He's just like it just yeah, drained yeah. no energy. I think he. Before he before he speaks to him, before he speaks to us, I don't know how much he eats, but he definitely downs a glass of wine because um, <laughs> he'll probably need it after after a night like that. Yeah. It was interesting. It was um, there was a kind of moment on Tuesday where he was there was a passenger play. I can't really remember what happened, but he someone gave the ball away, but it was the right idea in Real's third, and he was he was clapping uh, quite enthusiastically, clapping above his head. Uh, the whole ground just started booing him. Like, <laughs> can you imagine what that must feel like? Like you sort of forget. He loves it, doesn't he? Though I know, but you kind of forget like the the personal sort of toil like nights like that can take on someone. Mm. Like yeah. we just see it as you know, there's a game and it's a really important game. They want to win, whatever. But there are so many different layers to it with Guardiola, and it just that was all just crystallised in that moment where. Manager yeah. claps players and seventy thousand people go piss off, mate. 
Yeah, he talked. <laughs> he's he talked about this um, not in depth in the past, but it is that sort of idea of um, like ultimately I make the decision that I feel is right, and it might be the right or the wrong one. But then loads of people judge me for making that decision. I, like he's talked about that in the past, hasn't he, Jack? Yeah, I mean, my argument would be stop reading Twitter. <laughs> um, would be the it's just I, yeah I don't it baffles me that is it's is always baffled me that he's that bothered about sort of public perception. Um, I get that. I understand it. He's the great he's the greatest manager that's ever you know arguably the greatest manager that's ever lived. He's completely dominated English football for the last six years. Like he's got nothing to prove to anyone. So doesn't matter what you know. Joe Bloggs writes in a column for the Daily Bugle, does it? Like, <laughs> what, what, why is he bothered? It just doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. Um, just looking back at uh, the game, Dan, um, I mean, the, the big talking point around City's goal was whether the ball was out or not. Um, we can clear up why, <laughs> very easily, why the VAR didn't get involved. Um, and it's because Madrid had possession. So uh, the they had control possession. They gave it away themselves. It was There's no reason to go back further than that because it's, it's a new phase of play. Um, and on top of that, the VAR would need conclusive proof that it's gone out. And, you know, a graphic designed by being sports uh, isn't <laughs> actually conclusive proof um, do we know whether Keezy was doing it I don't know I don't know um, but what I will say in all of that though Dan um, City might have been a bit lucky with it yeah maybe I mean I don't know should the uh, linesman flag if he doesn't know or should the referee probably not really you probably should you should give advantage to the attacking team in, in that scenario Um yeah, that, that 3D graphic that was doing the I know we live in a sort of post-truth society nowadays, but even I was a bit surprised by how little scepticism there was about this like <laughs> 3D technology that being being sports apparently have access yeah. to. And yeah, Arsene it's Wenger... sort of conclusive mu- proof, yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, Arsene Wenger sort of muddied the waters afterwards when he was asked about it as well, didn't he? Um, which didn't, wasn't very helpful. Um, so yeah... Yeah, maybe City were a bit a bit luckier there. I, d- I don't really know. I mean, I, I don't really care. At the end of the day, Madrid got the ball back, didn't they? And they still gave it away. And I think yeah. I think Ancelotti's comments about it were quite calculated after the game as well. I think even he knows he was talking shite about that, but he was just trying to sort of like <laughs> re- redress the narrative or something, whatever. You know, a bit of a, perhaps a, a throwback to his Everton days. That I did actually, in the ground, when when the ball did or didn't go out, I... I was like, ah, why have you not like gathered that ball in there? I thought it was out. And it, it, it just felt, around the ground, it just felt as if it was, if you know what I mean. There was just a, a feeling, oh yeah, that ball's gone out. But as you say, it doesn't matter, does it? Like They've got the ball back and then it's the second phase. So, uh, But at the same time, Jack, um, did you get the sense that uh, Madrid were roughing up City a little bit? And I mean, there was a, there was a couple of challenges that were... I'd say on the um, industrial end of the friendly industrial scale. Yeah, it's happened a lot recently. Um, Leeds were doing it uh, at the weekend as well, weren't they? When Forshaw just completely poleaxed Rico Lewis within about <laughs> sixty seconds of the game starting. Everyone defended um, him this time, though, didn't they? So uh, yeah, well, yeah, no, yeah. No, no happy flowers here. Yeah, he did the words. Um, yeah, the uh, Grealish was on the end of one from Carvajal, wasn't he? Which was really, I mean, that was really naughty. That, um, and then Gundogan, Gundogan got two or three. Yeah, uh, the Cruz tackle was an awful tackle, but the the Rudiger sort of, I don't know, elbowy shove. 
was reminiscent of uh, the one he gave to De Bruyne in the 2021 final in Porto and obviously fractured his eye socket. I, that Rudiger one could have been really nasty if he caught him in the in the wrong place. But it's what, we didn't it's get what, a foul for that, I don't think, did we? No, no, no that was play no. on. <laughs> um, but it's, it's, it's what teams do, isn't it? It's trying to unsettle City. You've got to, to, when they move the ball so quickly, you've, you've got to find a way of getting in amongst them and... It's, you know, it's, if, it's you a, if you can't beat them, kick them. Yeah, but that's the thing, isn't it? It's like I, I thought as much as City were being roughed up, they didn't let it get to them. They just kind of. I'm not going to say they didn't rise to it because Grealish was on the very edge of rising to it, and I think he, I think he plays that kind of panto villain very well, actually. Um, but there's, there was almost this sense of yeah, they're doing this to us, and I don't. I mean, maybe it's my blue tinted specs and my uh, blue trilby that I've got on, but I, I don't know <laughs> like, if if City have been if City were kind of doing it back or if they were just coping with it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, you do. It's, it's quite rare that you see them retaliate. Um, oh, obviously, Grealish has had he had one at Fulham the other week, didn't he? Um, but yeah, they, they they normally take it take it in a stride. Is it the, as long as you're not hurt, you take it as a compliment, don't you? Yeah, that this is you know, as I said before, that's all. That's all you got. Yeah, reducing to kicking them. Then, thanks very much. I mean, we we sort of gave as good as we got. I thought as well. Bernardo left one on one of their players. I think in the first half, didn't he? Rodri was getting very sort of handsy at times. I think that you've got to be willing to fight and stand up for yourselves in these moments in these games. And I, don't, I think City have got that in them. I think they they relish those battles and and it it drives them on. Like you know, Grealish getting in in Carvajal's face. I mean, how he didn't get booked, I'll never know. But um, Oh, it didn't get three bookings even in the first half, but yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, I think it's just part of part of this level of football, really. Yeah, it's sort of a respect thing either way as well, though. Because did you see Walker and um, was it Vinicius afterwards? Uh, yeah, the video where they they just like it, it. It was like two old friends who had had like a real go at each other throughout the ninety minutes. It's like you're not friends; you've never met each other before, surely. <laughs> yeah, they just love those challenges, don't they? Yeah. So, someone on Twitter put that photo of them uh, high fiving each other alongside the Pele and Bobby Moore picture. I was like, <laughs> I mean, it, it was a good battle, but let's, you know, can we calm down, please? Yeah, feet, feet on the ground. Eh? Ad-free episodes are available on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast. While we're while we're talking about uh, that era of England as well, speaking of Gordon Banks, uh, let's talk about Edison um, because uh, he made some important saves in Madrid, didn't he, Jack? Yeah, and I think he's been really good for the last four to six weeks. Um, there was loads and loads of criticism of him, uh, yeah, not so long ago, and he just wasn't really producing from a shot stopping point of view. But he's he's been really really good um, recently. Uh, there was, you know the game at Bayern. He played well at Bayern. He made some decent saves, yeah. and he looked. He, a, I don't know. You two be different as, as supporters, but the, I feel a bit more sort of confident when teams are approaching City's box that actually Edison will go and will go and bail them out now uh, in mm. a way that I probably wasn't beforehand. Yeah, I'm not a hundred percent convinced still this season, but. Um... I mean, Do you think he should have saved the goal? No, I don't. I think because there was really a lot of that, wasn't there? There's yeah, like people I, moaning that. I think that's just Edison. I, I think that's people who don't like Edison for his goalkeeping. Were uh, looking for things to 
um, to criticise him for. I think the I think the goal, yeah, it's not in the corner. Yeah, um, it's it's uh, it's a little way out, but he hits it that hard. It's I I don't think you can react to that as um, as easily as as people seem to say that. I mean, the, the, we've we've talked about wanting to see big saves from him, Dan, um, and that's what it's been in the last few weeks, hasn't it? Those moments, there's been some really big and important saves. Yeah, I mean, I don't think the saves he made in this game were anything out of the ordinary, really. I mean, the Benzema one from the header on first glance looked like an amazing save, and then when you see it, it's actually not a particularly great header. It's kind of straight at him, and the Chuameni save in the second half again, it's a really hard shot, but it's qu- it's quite close to his body, and you'd expect a keeper, a top level keeper, to make that save all the time really 10 times out of 10 I would say but the difference is obviously like we've said even in, in, in the past he wasn't making those sort of saves often enough and I think it just makes such a difference to the whole team when you you can rely on your goalkeeper to make those saves to not concede um, some of the easier shots um, you know something to build on every single game and you know Ed- Edison's been an integral part of, of how City play for many years now and, and will be for probably many years to come you know the, the, the stuff that he does with his feet is um, is so so crucial to City and I wonder if maybe the competition from Ortega this season has, has maybe put him on his toes a little bit more now that he knows that he's got an understudy who is good with his feet as well and does make those those saves you know when Ortega came in um, the other week you weren't concerned about him playing at, at all really were you when he played well so yeah, I think I think those two are perhaps pushing each other on, and it's uh, it's really good for City that, that Edison has found this form. I think the best example of Edison recently is uh, the save he made when Carlos Vinicius was going through at Fulham. I think it was two one at the time, and Fulham were playing really well, and there was a little bit of a mix up at the back, and Edison came and saved it at Vinicius's feet on the edge of his own bo- uh, on the edge of his box where. Previously, you're thinking he comes rushing out like that. Is he going to bring him down? I think yeah. we can see the penalty. Yeah, you know they draw that game, and the and the season looks completely different, doesn't it? Yeah, um, we'll get on to uh, how the season will look uh, with the Everton game shortly. Um, also, look at the second leg uh, with Real Madrid. Uh, but first, I want to have a quick look at the Leeds game as well because we've not really talked about that. Um, Jack Guardiola was really pissed off about the uh, penalty incident at the end of that, and um, Haaland giving it over to Gundogan. Uh, was he right, or was that a bit of an overreaction, or is it actually weirdly a bit of both? Uh, yeah, probably a bit of both actually, because he was um, apoplectic on the touchline, and then by the time he'd come inside to see us, he'd sort of calmed down um, a little bit, but then made some pointed remarks that Harland's a taker, and if it's not Harland, it's Mares. Like we're not running a charity here. It was only two 0 <laughs> and he is right. Like. I can't remember what I can't remember what time the penalty was at. It was about eighty minutes. Yeah, it was only it was like two minutes before Leeds' goal. It was like really. I think, the pro- the, I think the problem with it was, it felt like a testimonial for ages that game. Yeah, and I don't think anyone was sat there going Leeds are going to get back into this, and that obviously transmitted to the onto the pitch, and they sort of forgot that. Oh, it's a cliche, but two 0 is dangerous, isn't it? And any team in a division can go up the other end and, and score and they can make it quite nervous. But it's just, I think they felt so comfortable and, self co- and so confident that the game was won. That it was like, all right, you, you go and have it. Um, but yeah, it won't happen again, will it? So it's probably, weirdly in hindsight, it's probably a good thing it happened. Yeah. There's there's a, a kind of a bigger picture thing to this as well, Danny, because I wonder, had it gone 3-0 at that point, I wonder if the subs board goes, off, goes up and Haaland and De Bruyne come off. Yeah, I- 
I mean, if Pep was that concerned about that, surely he could have made sure that Gundogan didn't take the penalty. Just like shout over and say, no, don't take it. Let Haaland take it. It seemed like a bit of a kind of, it reminded me a bit actually of um, last year when Mares missed the penalty away at West Ham. And after the game, there was loads of people on Twitter saying, why didn't De Bruyne take it? And it's like, because Mares is the penalty taker. You can't just sort of work backwards when someone misses a penalty and say someone else should have taken that. And like, you know, I was quite happy to see Gundogan take the penalty. He's, you know, been, been a decent penalty taker in the past. He's missed a few, obviously, but... He scored some, and I thought you know it would have been nice if he'd if he'd got his first hat trick. But yeah, I mean, I take the point that uh, yeah, we, you want to finish the game off and and see it out in that situation. But I mean, I thought Gundogan was going to score, so and he and he very nearly did it. Sort of hit the post, didn't it? So I think it was uh, yeah, a bit of a, a bit of an odd one from Pep, really. Yeah, what does it say about Haaland though, Jack? That um, he he would do that um, because Guardiola talked about it being uh, about him and his personality in the press conference afterwards, and it's it did make it it, it did make me kind of think that there's a, there's a contradiction there because Haaland is the machine who wants to score at all times, and yet here he is going, well, go on, mate, you get yourself a hat trick, your first career hat trick, probably the only one you'll ever get. Yeah, well, it's the it's the thing that's surprised staff at the club more than anything else about Haaland this year is just how selfless he is and wants above all else wants the team to do well which is obviously quite an easy thing to say but there is an element of surprise about how much of a team player he is Um, which is uh, as you sort of alluded to it is a massive contradiction really isn't it particularly when you look at the amount of goals he's got and you go you think you can't if, score that many without being really selfish? No, but, but if you like marry, if you marry those numbers up with someone who actually, you know, wants to link with the team, and you've seen it in his improvement with his with his hold up play and the way he uh, interacts with the field, that he is working really hard on making himself a proper Man City player who can lead that line and they're not and and they can play the, a, a similar way to the to they always have. If you can marry that up with the numbers, then you've got like it's frightening, isn't it? Absolutely yeah. frightening. And he's it's great for them that they've got. He's probably the first superstar they've signed, actually ready-made superstar they've signed since Rubinho. And the fact that they've they've signed one who is takes like I don't know a holistic view to himself and his teammates is yeah, it's incredible, incredible business. Yeah, we uh, I we I do have to be careful with the Haaland praise because if I if I'm not, then I've suddenly made him the greatest man on earth, and that like you, you know what I mean? It's like it's very easy to get carried away by uh, by by praising him like that. Um, I mean, all, all that stuff that Pep was saying about oh he's so generous and all that. It's like well he scored 51 goals this season. Like it's like uh, saying Jeff Bezos is generous if he gives you a fiver or something. Isn't it really. Like, uh... <laughs> yeah. Um, just while we're on uh, the penalty in Gundogan, um, Jack, did you? I, I, I saw a story from you recently about uh, Gundogan and his future. Was I, am I am I making that up? Or have I seen that? Uh, I wrote something on Gundogan last week about how it'd be a travesty if he goes, um, which I, which I think it would be. It's difficult to find someone that is capable of doing what Gundogan does, while also understanding he's like Pep on the pitch, isn't he? Yeah. He is, yeah. He is Pep, uh, and you can you know, obviously the next door neighbours, and you can see it with the interaction between each other uh, that he would he would leave a massive massive hole in that squad if if he was to go in the summer. Um, What's you got on that? Are you, are you thinking he's he's likely to? It, it's looking it's it's looking more likely that he'll go. Uh, Barcelona offering a two year contract, albeit on significantly less money. Um, 
it won't all be down to Len for contracts. There's other elements, like particularly if the, you know if they win the Champions League and he's won everything, you go is now the time to say goodbye. Um, but equally, City need to know what he's doing pretty quick because it impacts on the. It's quite ruthless, isn't it? But it impacts on their transfer business in the summer. Yeah. It's all well and good, sort of giving him the time he needs, but they're gonna they're gonna have to replace him pretty sharpish. Uh, and all right, they will have people that they like that would come in and, and try and fill that that void if Gundogan were to go. But the sort of players that they'll want are the ones that all the top teams want. So you're sort of behind everybody else a little bit while you wait for him to make a decision. Yeah, is is there an issue, Dan, if Gundogan leaves this summer and then Bernardo goes as well? Very much so. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't really understand why they would only offer Gundogan a one year extension if if that's the case. You know, he's he's thirty two, but he's club captain. You know, he's still really sort of peak of his powers. He's he's playing really really well. I, I don't I don't understand it, um, and, I, and I feel like they probably would have um, reached an agreement with him by now if he if he was going to stay. And there's, there's been all the talk about Barcelona, obviously. So. It seems to me like he, he's off and, and there's always going to be talk about Bernardo. I, I just kind of wonder who's going to come in for him this summer if, if Gundogan's going to Barcelona and, you know, they've got lots of issues off the pitch. Um, I can't see them being able to afford the kind of money that City would want for Bernardo. I don't know, maybe PSG come in for him, but I think he'd be mad to go there personally. You know, I know Paris is a nice city and all that, but in football in terms, it's it's a huge step down from City, the, the way that club is, is being run at the moment. So... I'm kind of wondering if, if there's a big signing lined up um, here. You know, it's probably not going to be Bellingham. That seems quite unlikely, but there's been a bit more talk about Matteo Kovacic from Chelsea in recent days, who is a pretty good player, but I don't know if I'd be, you know, too happy about Gundogan and Bernardo leaving and, and him coming in. Um, I suppose we've got James Bakatee coming back from Sheffield United. Um, and if, if one of those leave, then it presents a bit more of a pathway to him in the first team. But uh, risk, risk yeah, it's a bit of well, a, though, isn't they? Yeah. Obviously, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a young player. Like, yeah, so it's um, it's a bit of a, a confusing situation at the moment. I just hope they've got a, a clear plan in mind. Yeah. Um, final thought for the first part of the show, uh, Jack. Uh, Rico Lewis, you mentioned him before getting uh, basically taken out in the first moments of the Leeds game. Uh, but, I mean, given that that happened and given what he was asked to do and the way he played, I thought he was utterly brilliant. I thought I, I can't speak highly enough of someone who is as young as he is coming into the team, asked to do the role he does, and just being as brave as he was on the ball. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's great, isn't he? He's... Um... He's still got a long way to go technically, uh, but to have that sort of head on your shoulders and, and brain and understanding for, for the role and, and what you need to do at that age stands him in really, really good stead. Like I'm, I'm, I'm going out to Georgia to cover the England under-21s uh, who have got European Championship in, in June, a week after, starts a week after the Champions League final. And Lewis will be in that squad, and I'm fascinated to see how he does against players his own age, and how much potentially how much better he is um, than the other sort of 18, 19, 20 year olds around around Europe, because there is the potential for him to be just like an absolute star during yeah. that two or three weeks. Yeah. Um, for everything that you know, he's not actually played that many games this year, but what. He, for just for him to show what he's learned on a on a different stage um, is a fantastic opportunity. 
Yeah. He's played, weirdly for someone his age, I think he's played a lot more than you'd expect as well. Like, you think of how... how yeah, many, there is that. Yeah. But if you, like, just, if you just look at the, like, raw numbers, it's like, yeah, oh, yeah. Well, he's played, I don't know what it is, 15 games or whatever, which is more than you would expect. But actually, sort of minutes on the pitch, it hasn't been... That big, yeah. What, sorry, what I'm trying to say is that his, his trajectory is far quicker than the minutes he's been given. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Um, the other side of his of his personality, Dan, is just his ability to belong in the team. I mean, take the Leeds game, for instance. He bought De Bruyne at one point for not giving him the ball. <laughs> he bought De Bruyne for not giving him the ball. Like, like, that's, <laughs> like who does that? Um, yeah. And then there was a moment in the in um, where City were on the counter and he just dummied it to let it run through to, to Gundogan. And I was like, this, this kid, like, yeah. he's just living his best life on that pitch. Absolutely, yeah. And I think... Um... Was that his first start since Spurs away? Yeah. I'm pretty sure it is. And, and he played sort of left-back that day, didn't he? He played the inverted left-back. Looked a bit uncomfortable. You know, wasn't the only one who, who didn't have a great game that day. And, and that cost him his place in the team for a while. I think it was probably circumstantial as well that we wanted to change and get the experienced players in the team a bit more. But the fact that he can come back into the team after months of not being involved and just kind of pick up where he left off was really impressive as well. And uh, yeah, his personal he plays and, and carries himself like a 30-year-old. Like, it's scary how good he's going to be if he keeps developing at this rate. And I think he's really important to the way City build up and probably plays that inverted full up, fullback role better than anywhere else in the team, even better than, than John Stones, I would say. Um, I'd be interested to know if he can play a kind of, you know, normal fullback role at some point as well, um, how, he, how he fares there. I think, you know, if there's one kind of weakness to his game at the moment, it's perhaps that he, he might be a little... Um, uh, I don't want to say suspects, but in, in sort of one-on-ones and duels and stuff like that, he's, he's perhaps not as good as, as some of the more experienced players around him. But I think the best thing you could say about him is that like Pep could start him in any game and you wouldn't be worried, would you? Even if he played against Real Madrid next week, I would not be worried about that, about that at all. I'd be, I'd be eager to see what he could do, if anything. So yeah, great little player. I love him. If you enjoy the show, please give it a rating and a review wherever you get your podcasts. We talked about him already, but Erling Haaland is the Premier League's record goalscorer in a single season. Now, we discussed his ridiculous stats on last week's show, uh, but we didn't really have time to look at it properly, recording so soon after he broke the record. So, this week, we've been back through the season to hear from the people he's been terrorising all year, the opposition managers. Sam Roscoe takes a look at what they've been saying about how they're trying to stop him and how it hasn't been working. the biggest surprise in Saturday's win over Leeds was that Erling Haaland didn't score. Do you make special plans for, for Erling Haaland? <laughs> oh yeah. I think that, uh, you know, it's, 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 but it's also supply. Stop the supply and stop the big man getting as many chances as he gets. And then you limit his chances for scoring, so stop the supply, but keep an eye on him at all times, particularly in the final third. That was the new Leeds manager, Sam Allardyce, speaking before the game. In his defence, he did keep Haaland from scoring, but possibly more by luck than judgement. Haaland missed several one-on-ones, hit the post, and chose not to take the penalty, and that's not really cutting off his supply. This is what Guardiola said he'd do if he was coming up against him. What we have shown in his career, not here, is difficult to, to can imagine, but I think as a team, to be involved as less as possible. So when we, we play against uh, 
against him when he was in Borussia Dortmund is try to have 70-80% of ball possession to don't be involved as much as possible. But nobody has 70-80% to 80% possession against City. Arsenal got the closest. This was Mikel Arteta's plan before the recent game at the Etihad. When they play really far from your goal, they have the capacity to exploit open spaces and when they are attacking low blocks, now they have a different threat because they are a bit of a physical team right now. Because of how clinical he is, it's the bigger challenge to stop the supply to him. What can you do when, you know, when he's in front of goal and he's so clinical? Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's more difficult. Obviously, preventing the source is, is yeah. something that probably is the best, uh, the best recipe. Haaland scored home and away against Arsenal this season, despite Arteta having time to come up with a game plan. Others weren't as fortunate. Here's West Ham boss David Moyes speaking after the opening day of the season. The difference with today is if you looked at the Charity Shield game, they had uh, De Bruyne made a couple of passes and very simple, uh, tried to play through exactly what they'd done for the goal and it was either offside or it didn't quite make it. I think they got a very similar run and it looks like something which all the teams are going to be really aware of. Haaland's runs in behind maybe gives them something different. The ball in behind was key when he scored his first hat-trick a few weeks later. It was against Crystal Palace. Patrick Vieira spoke afterwards. Try not to give him so much space inside the box because he's someone who moves quite really well. He's a goal scorer, there's no doubt about it. So I think in the, in the first half we did it quite really well, not give him that space for him to express himself. And then uh, in the second half, when we were a little bit late to put pressure on the ball, when we didn't defend the second ball that well, he was there and, uh, and take his senses. Defending as a team and stopping the supply was Vieira's focus when the sides met later in the season too. He's at the end of all the opportunities that they are created. But you know, you need to stop people providing those opportunities. And that's why our performance tomorrow has to be based at the team performance. It worked better at Selhurst Park, but Haaland still scored through a penalty. Defending as a team hasn't gone much better for plenty of others too. Four days after scoring a hat-trick against Palace, he did the same to Nottingham Forest. Harry Kane on Sunday, Haaland you know, uh, tomorrow, you know, two world-class strikers and goal scorers and... Um, and yeah, but I go back to let's focus on ourselves. Let's let's remind ourselves that this is what we wanted. This is why we worked as hard as we did last season and throughout our careers. But at the same time, backing ourselves to be as good as we can be. That was Forest manager Steve Cooper before the match. Here's what he said afterwards. He's brilliant. He's got the lot, hasn't he? You know, and um, and on the end of it, he scores all the goals as well. So um, yeah, we knew we were coming up against you know, an absolute world-class striker and he's not the only world-class player in the team, obviously. But still, you have to you have to back yourselves and, you know, so I don't want to take anything away from, from his goals tonight, but I am looking at our guys thinking we could, could have done a bit better. Even managers who had coached the goal machine at other clubs couldn't stop him. Jesse Marsh was Leeds' boss earlier in the season. He'd been Haaland's manager at Salzburg. It'll certainly be important for us to manage him on the day. I've been asked many times, how do you do that? And the answer is, I think you just have to have a keen awareness of where he is at all times and where he likes to be. And certainly it's his ability to run hard into the box, his ability to run hard in transition, his ability to, to do whatever it takes around the goal to get on the ends of plays. So he's often not the one that's starting the play. He's always thinking about where to beat so that he can be finishing it. And his, his instincts in that manner are incredibly unique. 
So we will educate the team as to what to expect and, and then how to try to prevent him from, from getting into those areas. Haaland still scored twice at Ellen Road. Earlier in the season, and after a Haaland hat-trick in the Manchester derby, Eric Ten Hag was asked if it's possible to defend against someone so deadly in front of goal. Yes, as a team, to, to defend. And I, I tried to explain uh, that we, uh, you have to be front foot and you have to be good in possession. And when you don't do that well, the two elements of football, uh, they, the opponent is dictating, is dominant, and enter in the box, yeah, and then strikers like Erling Haaland, uh, they have a threat, clear. Southampton manager Ruben Sellers had similar thoughts ahead of the game recently. I don't think per se one player can change the dynamic of one team. I think that can like one player can change it if the other ten are doing the job uh, properly. So the, the fact that uh, Manchester City now has a, a Haaland in, in front just make their system a little bit better because the creation of the chances with the Ruben Diaz in the build-up, Ederson long distribution, uh, Kevin De Bruyne in the half spaces, Gundogan, Bernardo, Rodri as a central player, they make it possible. And it's not about only Erling Haaland, it's about as a team that knows how to use their players in the best way possible. So that's what we are focused. In that game with the Saints, Haaland again scored twice. Against Fulham, he scored once home and away, but only thanks to two penalties. Here's how their manager, Marco Silva, said he'd planned to deal with the Norwegian ahead of the second game. We have to try to stop the Man City team. The reality, they have uh, so many ways to create for him and that is difficult to stop. And uh, when I say that it's difficult to stop, was not just talent because if you, if he's not talent, it will be another one. I think last game that they, they played, they were winning clear, um, and Alan just got in the last minutes of the, the game one one goal. So many individual players for us to, to look at. We prefer to look in a different way, to look for their, in a collective way that they are um, strong, one of the best teams in the world, if not the, the best, and clear the the best team in, in this competition. So that's several pieces of advice so far. Play high up to keep City away from your own box. Keep the ball to cut down the amount of opportunity City have to find Haaland. Stop the supply when he wants to run in behind. But don't focus so much on him that you forget about his teammates. Even that, though, isn't enough. Haaland is adapting. Here's Burnley manager and former City captain Vincent Company. Haaland has obviously had more pressure than any other player joining because in the first season, at a young age, it's expected for him to already be at his best, but he'll, he'll only get better. And, um, and you can already see clear signs of improvement in his game. You know, um, his goal scoring is always unbelievable, but his, uh, his overall game is, is, is improved and it's only going to keep improving. That was ahead of the FA Cup tie earlier this season. Company was also asked if he could have defended against Haaland. I've played against the greats of this time, you know, your, your Messi's, Ronaldinho, Zidane, all these guys, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo. In the end, they, they, they're, they're part of a very, very special elite because I think even the very best find it difficult to stop those guys. No matter what you say that you're going to stop them, they're going to find a way and, and someone like Erling will, will keep finding a way. He scored another hat-trick his sixth of the season in that win over Burnley. There were stories last August that the Premier League managers had been phoning each other to ask for advice on stopping Haaland. Judging by his numbers this year, and by the advice we've heard over the last few minutes, it looks like nobody really has any answers. 
But maybe that's because there are no answers. And for City fans, that's a pretty exciting thought. Hi there, this is Joe Royal speaking. You're listening to the Blue Moon Podcast and carry on doing so. The Blue Moon Podcast. If City won't let you down on the pitch, let us let you down off it instead. That was Sam Roscoe looking at uh, what's been said about Haaland this season. Um, Time now to look ahead to the coming games with Everton and Real Madrid. Um, So go on then, Jack. Uh, Let's start with Everton. Tell me how you'd balance this week if you were Guardiola. Uh, I've actually done a predicted team in today's newspaper, which I have Ra- forgotten. Rather you than me. I, I have no idea what this team. <laughs> you know what? Like. It was. You know what? It was my idea. I don't know why I said it. I like, <laughs> why on earth would you put yourself through that? Um, hang on, I'm just trying. So, to if you want to answer that question, there. go and buy the paper. Basically, <laughs> yeah. In in all bad news agents today. Um, <laughs> hang on, I've got it here. So I've got obviously got Edison. Uh, Edison, Walker, Akanji, Diaz, Ake, presuming that he's back. Still playing Rodri. And then the four in front of Rodri is Mares, De Bruyne, Alvarez, Foden, with Haaland up front. Right. So I think that's probably only four changes. Yeah. Yeah. Because this is, this is the interesting balance, I think, for this week, Dan. That... Um, like I think the big question is Haaland because like you think about uh, Aguero in the past and the number of times where for the team Aguero was genuinely rested or genuinely rotated out because the bigger picture says that he's he's going to play next week. Um, Haaland that hasn't happened yet. Maybe it never will happen. I don't know. But if it's going to happen, this is the sort of game where it might <laughs> happen. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, he starts for me, but I wouldn't be too distraught if Alvarez started ahead of him. You know, it worked pretty well against Liverpool and maybe Alvarez could be better suited to the way that Everton are likely to set up in this game. You know, I'm expecting them to dig in and, you know, defend the edge of their box really, really strongly. And it could be one of those games where Haaland doesn't see an awful lot of the ball and maybe it would be helpful to have a player uh, dropping in and and linking up in the way that Alvarez is perhaps a little bit better at. yeah, I, but for me, I would I would still go with Haaland from the start. I, th- I think I would I would bring Mares, Foden, Alvarez, and Laporte all into the team. I'd probably give Walker a rest personally, and I probably wouldn't even if Ake's fit. I would probably wouldn't risk it, risk him for this. I'd, I'd probably save him and and get Rico Lewis in the team. Maybe um, maybe even give 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 De Bruyne a rest. Um, but yeah, Haaland Haaland starts for me. I think. But he's been he's been really worried about the Everton game for a couple of weeks. Keeps mentioning it. So I just I I don't know whether it's one of those where. He doesn't feel he can risk it. Yeah. But on the flip side, there's if you're going to win a treble, then you've got there to use are the squad, haven't games, you? Yeah. You, you, there's certain games that you've got to roll the dice. You've got to go right. Well, I've got to trust these. You know, or you go and, you go and make five, six, seven changes, and you go, well, I trust these players to go and get me a result because obviously you can't play the same team every, every three days for the next however long if you're going to win all three trophies. Yeah, the um, the the five six seven changes though thing though uh, does worry me because you look at, at the past. It's always, I mean, it was always the the uh, FA Cup semi final in the past, and you know they were always coming up against pretty decent teams in like Liverpool and and uh, Chelsea. Uh, but the games where he's made those number of changes, it's just been quite disjointed. And you'd look at like you you'd look at Everton games in the past, even last season. Everton were were there for the taking when City went there last season, and they were what a Rodri. 
non-handball away from from dropping points. So like, it's, a, it's a really nervy game and a really nervy place, Jack. Yeah, although the one thing I would say was, are Everton going to produce two performances of that ilk back-to-back? Yeah. After um, after Walloping midweek? Brighton, yeah. Probably not. Um, I, so in that... But then you sort of... You're kind of gambling either way, aren't you? Because that's a law of averages thing and there's, you know... Doesn't mean it's going to come come off, does it? I don't. I don't know. It's, you're right with the FA Cup semi-final thing because the FA Cup semi-finals in recent years have been by and large abominations because they're dropped into a, a, a massive game and don't couldn't have never been able to handle the pace of it because they've not been playing in, in the weeks before. Uh, so I, I know I said I did a predicted team this morning, but I just can't. It's difficult to call it, isn't it? Really, Could, yeah. I don't think either would surprise you if he made like loads of changes or if he went unchanged. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. Like you wouldn't be surprised either way. Yeah, it was. I mean, the other side of it, Jack, in the Bernabeu, was it? It was. It was, was it really warm? It looked really hot on the TV. I don't know if that'll have an effect. Uh, yeah, well, it was warmer for those of us that were wearing jeans. To be honest. <laughs> um, in fact, I did. I did a video. Uh, for the male's Twitter after the match, which we have to do now. And the guy I sent it to that was uploading it onto Twitter said, oh, it looks really hot out there. I was like, right, thanks very much. I thought I looked all right, actually. He was like, no, 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 not you, not you. It's like, oh, the camera's a bit, camera's a bit like fuzzy. So I presumed it was the heat. I was like, right, okay, fine. But yeah, it was hot. That's, that's some quality backtracking there. I mean, the, the one thing I would say is I, I, I suspect City's players won't be wearing jeans on, on Sunday, so I think we might be all right on that front. Um, the bigger, bigger picture stuff, Dan, obviously, title race, uh, I said it at the start, eight points to win it, nine points to be absolutely sure. There is some leeway, uh, but I guess, you know, you, you look beyond Everton and you fix your list being Chelsea at home, Brighton away and, uh, and Brentford away. You kind of don't want to use that leeway, do you? No, no, there is margin for error there. And I think um, I'm probably not alone in assuming that Arsenal were going to lose against Newcastle last week and that the margin for error would be even greater. And the fact that they did win that game unexpectedly was was really annoying for me. Um, and it would be really yeah. lovely if... Yeah, it'd be really lovely if Brighton could do as a solid later on Sunday after we play Everton and get some points off Arsenal in, in that game. Yeah, I think I think the remit just has to be do everything we can to win every game and leave nothing nothing to chance now, really. And you know, going into this Everton game, I am nervous about it. I think the last time we lost there was the uh, the four 0 defeat in Pep's first season, but it's usually a tough game, and I'm always quite concerned about it. And I think they will have their backs up after that win over Brighton. It will have given them a huge boost, and I think they're kind of at their best where when the pressure is off and they're the underdog and especially kind of Sean Dyche teams are like that. I think Goodison Park is going to be right behind them and it's going to be it's going to be a tough game. We've got to, got to try and quiet them down and dominate the ball. And we should be fine. You know, going into all these games, you, th- you think if City just play well and play their game, we'll be the better team and we should win. Um, but it's just, you know, like we said, if if they do make too many changes, it can lead to a disjointed performance. And we don't know if you, you're necessarily going to see the best version of City then. And that that could present a problem. But um, yeah, I just want to try and win every game now, really. And uh, and and we'll, we'll be fine. Yeah. Do you, I, I don't know if, if you meant to do this, but you just made me think of a Sean Dyche uh, game against City in the run-in uh, in 2018 when City went to Burnley and uh, it, it, it took Aguero, what, millimetres to get the ball over the mm. line and then they were hanging on. Don't want to put that, that 
fear of God into everyone, but you know, this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and well, and Burnley weren't battling relegation then, were they? So it's, uh, yeah. it's there's an even different element to what, throw in the mix this time. I think they got a, they have. I think they've got a win on Sunday. I don't think they want to go into that final week Brighton away and Brentford away needing six points. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I agree entirely. Um, in terms of uh, the picture then towards the uh, Champions League, Jack, um, we talked about it briefly in, in the first part of the show. Um, the fact that they brought a one-all back to the Etihad, uh, it's it's that's, I think, the key difference between this season and last season is that in, in the back end of that game at the Bernabeu last season, Madrid had to score. And that that was kind of almost the situation dictated that that's how it how it ended up happening. Whereas this time around, it's in City's control that, and you know, at the Etihad, City. I mean, City haven't lost a, a Champions League game at the Etihad since they uh, since they lost to Leon there when Arteta deputised for Guardiola. Mm. Yeah, I think it's like you were saying with the uh, when you were mentioning the FA Cup semi final before. I think things are aligning a little bit this year. In, in a way that they haven't previously. So the FA Cup, Sheffield United, you can rest a few players. Next week, having the the home leg second, it's just such a massive advantage and one that they haven't, you know, obviously they didn't have last year, uh, which makes it a completely different game. And you just wonder whether like little things like this are just, I don't know, it just feels are a little bit different. Are those the fine margins, yeah. Yeah, it just feels a little bit different this time. And like, I don't know, I'm, kind of confident that they're going to be able to get over the line in all the different competitions and it is I don't know it just it, maybe it's a small thing or maybe it doesn't maybe it doesn't matter but things have just I don't know just a little bit easier for them in a way um, obviously the, the Champions League draw hasn't been easy has it yeah I was going to say I'll let, I'll let you put and, that one to but <laughs> <laughs> no it's me but like <laughs> Yeah, I might be talking absolute shite, to be fair, which is not unusual. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's just the home leg second against Real Madrid is you'd far rather it than than first, wouldn't you? You see stats pop up all the time about clubs and players, and you want to know that exact thing about City. There's an answer. StatCity.co.uk Want to find out all of the players who played alongside club legends like David Silva, Sergio Aguero or Vincent Company? Or maybe you'd like to know which team found it hardest to score past Joe Hart. You can find out City's record in every competition, at every stadium and under every manager. Just go to StatCity.co.uk and browse away. That's StatCity.co.uk Check out exclusive City interviews on our website, bluemoonpodcast.com. How, how different do you think it'll be from the first leg, Dan? Or do you think it'll be uh, a very similar sort of game with both teams setting up in a similar way? I think our approach to it is going to be very different and we'll we'll really go for the jugular from the first minute. I think the atmosphere is going to be mega at the Etihad and I think we'll we'll try and do what we did to Arsenal and, and overwhelm Real Madrid straight from the, straight from the off. Um but I think, you know, Real Madrid aren't Arsenal. They are um, experienced at this level. You know, they are tricky customers. They know exactly what to do. And I think we have to be prepared for the possibility that they will be able to handle what we throw at them. And and 
we also can't let them kind of play around us easily like we did uh, the other night uh, at times and, and give the likes of Vinicius space to run into on the break. And, and I kind of feel like thinking back to the 4-3 game against them last season, I feel like our kind of whole mode, modus operandi this season has been based on that game and how to improve on how things went that night. All right, we won the game. It was a fantastic night but it kind of didn't serve us that well in the long run. And I think Pep has been trying to work our way throughout the season of how we can play that well, create chances, score goals, while also, well, score more goals ideally with, with Haaland there as well, while also kind of main, maintaining control of the game and keeping it tight defensively. And I think the whole season has almost been kind of building towards this game now, and it's going to be interesting to see what we can take from from sort of the, the way we've built and, and what we've learned from it and uh, whether we can improve on that. Yeah. Um this is a question from Peter. It's probably more for you, Dan. Um, he, he's got in touch on Twitter to say, do you have any concerns about the Madrid second leg atmosphere, especially after the way tickets were sold to anyone without proper criteria? I don't personally, no. Um, I mean, ideally the, the tickets would have been distributed uh, a lot more fairly and I'm, I'm really gutted for anyone who, who regularly goes to the match and has been to a lot of games this season and hasn't been able to get a ticket for this one. But... You know, I don't think it's necessarily going to be full of full of tourists, and I think you know these so-called tourists get a bit of a bad rap sometimes. And I think the the atmosphere takes care of itself on nights like this, really. And um, you know, I think there's going to be some pre-match display like there was against uh, Arsenal the other week. I think everyone's going to be really up for it, and I think the Etihad has quietly become quite a fearsome ground and quite a fearsome venue on nights like this, and a place that other teams are are getting quite scared of coming to. And it doesn't mean that the atmosphere is always amazing for every single game, but when it's good, it's really, really good. And I think every City fan understands that we've got a, a big role to play in this game on, on Wednesday night. And uh, yeah, just got to got to get that anthem booed and then have nothing but encouragement <laughs> and positivity. And I think it's going to be, yeah, Real Madrid are not going to like playing in that ground on that ground. Yeah. Right, well, uh, it's time to put your money where your mouth is, boys, because uh, two games down this week and two wins on the charity bet. First, Chris Higginbottom added £100 to the pot by correctly guessing the 2-1 win over Leeds. Then it was my one-all with Real Madrid that came in on Tuesday night to add another 55 quid to the kitty. That means we've raised £1,015 for the Man City Fans Food Bank Support Group. They're collecting food and money donations for the Trussell Trust to help people in poverty in Manchester, and they'll be outside the Etihad ahead of weekend home games. They've got one more to go. Go and see them in a fortnight ahead of the Chelsea game. Uh, but first, it's Everton and Real Madrid to predict. Uh, let's start with uh, Everton. I've gone for, uh, similar to that Burnley one in 2019, actually, a nervy 1-0 win, which is uh, 7-1 and £70 if I'm right. Dan, what have you gone for? A nervy 2-1. Nervy 2-1 is 8-1 and uh, £80. Jack, I know you wanted 2-1, but you were a little bit late in there. So what have you gone for? Yeah, I was. Uh, I've gone for a less nervy 3-1. Less nervy 3-1, I'll take it. Even though I think it is going to be a nervy 2-1. 2-1, yeah. Uh, but still, if it does finish 3-1, uh, it's 10-1 and 100 quid if you're right. Um, you two seem to have lost your minds with the Real Madrid game. Uh, so uh, we're going for my 2-1 uh, to City first, which is 15-2 to and £75. Uh, but I really hope that one of yours comes in because, Dan, you've gone for... 3-2 uh, to City. Which is 22-1 to and 220 quid if you're right. Uh, Jack, um, I mean... You're you're lining up the biggest win we've ever had. If you're right, so come on then. Well, I did. Uh, I did actually want three two to be honest, uh, <laughs> but I've gone for. <laughs> but I've gone for four three instead. 
4-3, my nerves will be shot, but at least it'll add <laughs> 900 quid to the kitty because it's 90 to 1 if you're right. So uh, fingers crossed for that one. Uh, you've got to be 18 or over to gamble. Prices can change. And for more on gambling responsibly, take a look at begambleaware.org. Now then, uh, as we near the end of the season, it's time to check in with our EDS expert, Sean Blinkhorn, to find out more about the players who have impressed in the younger age groups and to catch up with the youth players who are out on loan. I started by asking him about how the different age groups had done this year. So the way that we stand as we come towards the end of the season with the academy is the under-21s have won the Premier League 2 for the third year in a row, which is really good with them. And the under-18s have won the Premier League North, the under-18 Premier League North, for the fourth year in a row now. And also there's the the national title, which they won for a third straight time. Yeah, and I mean, so you look at, at kind of where the academy is at then at the moment. That's That seems pretty exciting stuff. Yeah, well, I don't know whether that's becoming quite normalised now that we win these titles, because it is, you know, three, four, three years in a row. And it just doesn't seem to generate the sort of news and headlines that it once did. But I, I wanted to argue for the importance of, of, of competing and winning at these age groups. And it's not just within the age group system where we're having success with that. This is so A lot of this will be stuff that, that people already know. But I just wanted to kind of collect it all together as a, as a big pot of, of, uh, of experience that the, the youngsters are starting to have now in the academies and not just, like I say. We've got a lot of young players that striving, uh, striving and competing for success at the end of the season, even if they don't reach it, to have the, the players in that conversation so late on to me, can only be a benefit. The line I've used before is these are young apprentices in a results-based business and what they will need is that success. So while we have had some failed loans in the past, some of them not great, some of them this year haven't been too wonderful, we've got about 10 fewer players on loan this year than we have in previous years. Used to be hanging around the late 30s, I think. Now it's in like the kind of late 20s. When it comes to loans that are actually starting to make an impact, we think back to Callum Doyle, who I came on talking about last year. Uh, was a real trailblazer in going out and getting himself a loan in his kind of second year as a, as a scholar, as, as you call it, out of, your second year out of school. He basically forced that he went to Sunderland. He wanted to play there. He played for a lot of the season, faded towards the end, as you might suspect with some, some youngsters but still was involved in their promotion that that year. That, to me, I suppose you could look back as a, a bit of an op- uh, a, you know, a door opening, you're breaking through the glass ceiling, however you want to say it, in terms of loans for City. Because much like in this year, we've got the story of James McAtee and Tommy Doyle, especially in McAtee's case, seemingly from, what, from everybody who seems to be in the know, forced that issue. He said, no, I want to go alone. I don't want to play a bit part here. And I've, I've, I've come on the podcast this year and talked about how I was a little worried about that, how that, that loan seemed to be going at the start of the year. But my word is he turned it around. <laughs> I was going to say, it's, uh, um, you can't avoid, you, you, every week you're looking and you see more goals and headlines from him, aren't you? More goals, yeah. He's, he's been great. He's been really great. I, I watched him a few times this season. I don't always get to watch uh, loads of the loan players, but I've managed to watch James a lot. And as much as, you know, the footballing ability has always been there, um, but he has turned that round there, he genuinely turned that round. And I like to see little glimpses into the attitude 
forcing the issue, turning the situation round, becoming a top player and winning promotion, being involved at the, the rough end of the season. You've got to think about ta- uh, Taylor Harwood Bellis as well, winning the championship with Burnley. That's just as impressive, if not if not more, you could say. Um, you know, it's only one place in the table, I suppose, but championships, titles, especially at a younger age group, lower down the leagues. Even further back, you've got probably one of the strongest keepers I remember seeing in the academy, other than Angus Gunn quite a while back, is James Trafford. Uh, he's looked great. Now, it, there's a, there's an interesting thing with James Trafford as well because I uh, I had a Bolton fan um, who works at, a, at the centre I play football at um, recently say to me, do, do, "Have you got any information about James Trafford? We'd love him to stay. He's fantastic." Um, but he mm. said he's off at the end of the season. Uh, do, uh, have you heard anything about that? Do you know what that is? No, I'm not quite quite sure about that. I'm not quite sure where he'd go. I know he's said in the past that basically if he's if he's to come back to City. He will be challenging Edison. You know, that's the kind of mentality and again a good insight into how Where hungry some of yeah. these yeah, how hungry some of these young players are, that they're not prepared to sit about and wait for these things. They want no, I want to be competing when I come back, I'm good enough. I've been involved, like this year, winning the EFL trophy along with Luke and Beatty as well. So again, another player striving for success towards the end of the season. I just wanted to throw in that he's not really a youth player from City, but it's a Kabore been pushing for the league earn title with Marseille. I wanted to put that in just to show that the the reality of that and maybe some of our own homegrown younger players will drive up value in sell on rather than, you know, it being a catalyst for getting some of these players into the first team. So I do understand that difference, if you know what I mean. At the same time, striving for success and striving for to be uh, as close to the top of the game as possible at any time is only going to benefit us. Uh, so you've even got like the oh, I completely lost track of the amount of players we've got buybacks on and what have you. But <laughs> Lavi is the standout though, isn't he? Yeah. yeah, yeah, he is. He is, and he, he's looked excellent when I've managed to to watch him this season. I know, I know they're struggling a little bit, but he does. He, the, the, as there've been reports that like Southampton can only play the way that they want if Flavi is there. Yeah, and it's something, I mean, we've we've had Sam Ty on the podcast a few times this season, um, who uh, is not a Southampton fan, but he he covers the club. um, And he's talking about how Lavia basically makes them tick. And yeah, sure, they've struggled this season, but without him, they would have struggled a hell of a lot more than they have done. Um, I mean, where do do you stand on Lavia and and the situation with, I mean, the, the other side of this is that the elephant in the room is Calvin Phillips, who, you know... Let's be honest here. It, it hasn't worked out so far. It may not work out at all. Uh, they, uh, they, the club may look at, at moving him on and looking for somebody in that position again. Could they exercise the mm. buyback for, for Lavia? He couldn't even trust Phillips to come on in the last couple of minutes against Leeds. Yeah, he had to. He had to drag Rodri kicking and screaming back on through his three thousandth game of the season or whatever it is at this point. <laughs> Bless him. Um, so. I think there's a very little possibility, a very real possibility, sorry, that we, if that is to come to pass, that we could go in for Lavia. Is he going to take it? Is he going to sit on the bench behind Rodri when he could go to somewhere like picking a name out of the hat, Aston Villa, and probably play every week? I don't know. But I would like to see him come back because he's a player that made that Premier League two side really good when I was watching it pretty much every other week. 
that doesn't really mean anything, but he, he looks that good for Southampton that it, it's probably worth a go. Yeah. Along similar sort of lines, players that, well, not that might go, but when another side to this of what you're seeing more and more recently is our players aren't, while they're not getting sent out on useless loans to the middle of Holland somewhere or, you know, and then just to return having played seven games 12 months later and earn nothing, just as they're now starting to, to my mind, get to better and better loan opportunities, we're also seeing our players touted more. More and more I'm seeing rumours, transfer rumours from our really young players. They're going X, Y, Z, they're going here, they could go there, they could go oh, they, this, this. This manager's a, re- a great admirer of. And I saw Keane Brecken, who I thought has had a pretty good season for this for the sides that he's played for. I thought he's on occasion he's looked really good. He's kind of like a box to box midfielder. I thought he looked really good, and then I suddenly started seeing a couple of transfer rumours popping up, and he's he's barely played for the Premier League two side. Yeah. But when I read when I saw that, he's probably played a bit more now, to be fair. And then Carlos Borges as well, who we've spoke about before this season, who is basically the only remaining one of the youngsters that are still at the club that still kind of gets headlines here and there. Um, with one or two exceptions, he's still scoring goals as, as, as they zeroed in on the title. I mean, that's just another indication of the way things are going and the turnaround. Now, when it comes for the future for the academy, the head of the academy, Jason Wilcox, he's leaving at the end of the current season as we stand. So there is a bit of a reset, a restart, a reset to come in, in academy terms. But I think everything's been, everything's on the up, let's put it that way. And with the titles, which aren't really making headlines anymore, and I'm starting to think people are getting a bit bored of, there are signs away from that, that the academy and the players that we are generating have a promising future in the game. You're listening to the Blue Moon Podcast. You've made it this far, so don't give up now. That was Sean Blinkhorn. We'll squeeze in a few questions uh, from Twitter before we finish. Get in touch for next week at Blue Moon Podcast. Uh, Josh says, uh, after Ed and Jacko impressed for Inter in the other semi-final this week, it got me wondering what his legacy should be at City now that several years has passed. Uh, Dan, what do you think? I think he was a great striker for us who provided some fantastic memories and I'll always have a really special place in my heart for Jacko. You know, you think of the goals in the 6-1 at Old Trafford and the uh, the four goals he scored away at Spurs in particular, they really stand out. At the same time, I, I felt he was quite a limited player when he played for City and I thought his first touch was pretty shocking at times and I think it was the um, the right time for him to go when he left and I actually remember thinking at the time that we'd made a great uh, upgrade when we signed Wilfred Bonny and obviously that uh, that didn't quite pan out that way. Um, you know, Bonny was uh, Bonny was absolutely awful in the end but um, yeah, it was, it was a bit of a shame to see him go but I, I did kind of feel like it was the right time yeah. And I feel like a lot of City fans felt the same at the time. And there's been a little bit of revision about him in the years since. I think he was a really great goal scorer, but never a top tier striker for me, really. And I think, you know, his, the goal he scored on Wednesday for Inter was was classic Dzeko. It reminded me of that one he scored in the uh, the 3-0 win at Old Trafford. Um, and I wouldn't feel too happy about coming up against him in the final. But yeah, I think his, his legacy was uh, was a great striker, but not one of the all-time greats. Yeah, Jack. I don't know if you were covering City when uh, Jacko was still around. Were you? No, I wasn't. No, no. Um, Nor Boney, actually. Yeah. Well, look at you. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I, I did think it would be uh, really it, that there would be a, a 
good sense of irony, wouldn't there, if um, if football heritage took its place and City went, City managed to get past Real Madrid and then in the final Inter stank the place out, but Jacko got the winner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, he got asked about it last night, didn't he? About um, potentially facing City in the final, and he was like. I really hope so, yeah. And you think, yeah, that's just exactly the sort of thing that had happened. Like John Stones would inexplicably fall over, and Jacko would just walk <laughs> it into the walk it into the net, refuse to celebrate, uh, and then we'd all be doing inquests on where it's all gone wrong. <laughs> I can't wait. I'm really looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah, it's imagine like... that scoring scoring the winner in the Champions League final, but not being able to celebrate out of respect yeah. for your former club. I don't think that's <laughs> ever been done before, has it? Yeah, apologetic hands to finish there. Yeah. Well, until he uh, he would it would have been a muted celebration until he heard Dan say he's not a he's not a top striker. Yeah, sod it. I am celebrating. <laughs> yeah, he'll have he'll have Dan's face on his shirt underneath, just so that when he when he's ready to lift it up, he can point it to the camera. Yeah. Why um, always Dan? Why always Dan? Yeah. <laughs> um, let's finish with this from Eric on Twitter. Uh, since Alfie Harlan was escorted from his seat against Real Madrid, I wondered if you guys had ever been asked to leave anything football related. Um, I, I I don't know. We might get some funny stories here. Over to you guys. Anything? I was I was getting some very very funny looks on Monday night actually in Madrid when we all got turfed out the burnabout about 30 seconds after the press conference finished and I had to <laughs> file my stuff on a step on the street next to a massive roundabout and like locals <laughs> looking at me going what on earth is this fella doing I feel why like, is he wearing jeans yeah, I feel like that's uh, common though in the burnabout isn't it is it not a, is it not a thing where we see English journalists all the time filing from like the streets of Spain yeah but my, I mean mine was mine was actually real it happened uh, wearing <laughs> photos that you see on Twitter are all staged. Fair enough. Yeah, and you were wearing jeans inexplicably. So uh, yeah, yeah. Dan, anything uh, been kicked out of anywhere that you uh, that you shouldn't have been? No, I mean I was practically kicked into Main Road a few times back in the bad old days, but uh, never been thrown out really. Um, I did escort myself out of Old Trafford once actually after me and my dad went to watch uh, City play there and we had tickets in the home end in the Stratford end. It was the one when Hatem Trebelsi scored for City, if you remember that one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a 3-1 defeat and United scored really early and the locals uh, judged from our lack of celebration that we weren't United fans pretty quickly and were making some very threatening remarks towards us. So we uh, we decided to cut our losses and, and leave and just went... Well, we actually went and watched the game on the, on the concourse on the TV screens instead, but... Yeah, apart from that, nothing. I'm, I'm very well behaved at football, but I am going to Goodison Park this weekend, so maybe that's the famous last words. I'll, I'll end up getting arrested or something. Having said yeah. that. Get yourself chucked out of Goodison and uh, and uh, we'll reconvene next week and find out how it happened. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm just trying to think of like any anything that's happened to me as an, as an away fan when I've been watching my team. There was there was one, you know the underpass at Wolves Yeah. as you go back to the train station? That There was a hairy moment there where we got sort of like surrounded by about eight Wolves fans and I had a I was about 18, 19 at the time I had a lit cigarette in my hand and big boots on I was like am I going to have to go all Joey Barton here? Is this going to be required? But thankfully not Thankfully not Yeah so uh, yeah, we'll uh, we'll have more tales of uh, of Jack and Dan's football scraps uh, soon. Um, <laughs> but uh, for now, that's it for this week's Blue Moon podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and thanks to my guests Dan Burke. Always a pleasure. And Jack Gorn. Thank you very much. There's a clip of this week's Patreon show coming up, so stay tuned for that. I'll be back next week after the second leg with Madrid. See you then.
That was the Blue Moon Podcast. Please give the show a rating and a review where you can. And don't forget, you can listen without the ads by signing up to our Patreon. You'll also get an extra episode each Monday. Here's a clip of this week's. I ended up going to Dennis Irwin's testimonial at Old Trafford. But yeah, I think that was yeah. two weeks before the start of the season. And even then, I mean, I've sat in, like, in the away end. Um, it felt like he had a bit of an aura about him. And I'm not sure whether that's just because he had red boots on. And I just thought, wow, he's got the balls to wear red boots at Old Trafford. <laughs> and, and then this Sunderland game, he, he rocked up in a pair of like, yellow or orange boots. And even that, I, I thought, none of these City players have done that before. But before this game... I remember walking around Main Road, around Mossad with my dad before, and and uh, there were sort of these sort of knockoff shops that they used to have by the chippy on the corner that were yeah. just basically old terrace houses with a, like a, a rail upstairs with Fruit of the Loom t-shirts on with City printed on them or whatever it was. But I remember going upstairs in one of them before the match, and they had Weyer 22 unofficial t-shirts, one shop 23 unofficial t-shirts, and I just remember there being a buzz, and I'd, I'd never seen that before. I'd seen loads of you know, like you go on holiday, you see international teams and the bigger European teams having unofficial merchandise. And now, now City had it. And that was a sign of uh, how far we'd come. You can listen to more of that at patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast. And join us again next time for another episode. <laughs>